Hello and welcome to a very special episode from Centric Lab here on the City Centric podcast. So today's episode is actually a audio extraction from a virtual town hall that we hosted this morning uh, on a recent data study that we had been working on and released, uh, which was a study that looked at the intersection of COVID-19 deaths within the BAME communities and how we analyse these against our analytics tool, the SRS. Uh, the stress risk score tool that identified the correlation beyond reasonable doubt that the death numbers were also correlating through to the areas of what we call biological inequality, the disproportionate and chronic exposure to stressors, both environmental and psychosocial. So as it's an audio extract, the audio quality isn't so great, uh, but please do enjoy. The first voice you're going to hear is Araceli's, who is the lead scientist on the study. We will do a follow-up with the scientists uh, all four of them talking about the study very soon but in the meantime please do enjoy this and we'll speak to you again soon bye-bye we um, very much this is a scientific exercise so we do expect there to be critiques we do expect there to be more questions and all of that just helps us um, pose the argument better so this is not at all a top-down exercise okay so let's start first with the the fundamentals so there's there's I broke them down into into four parts um, and the first is understanding the framing of it so ethnicity and disease there's a new study that's come out which I don't think tells a full story it's it's climbing up the right tree but it's still not the full the full picture so we've had comments that or so we know on a statistical basis that it's been um, black and um, people of color that have been affected by COVID but we don't understand us above and beyond ethnicity or above and beyond race why that phenomena is actually happening so whilst there are some linear roots for example that people of color and black people have been on the front lines as essential workers that that is part of it it's also there uh, is the question of overcrowding in homes that is another um uh, another uh, part of the puzzle and then of course there's air pollution that um, people of color live in predominantly areas of high levels of air pollution but I want to understand the mechanisms behind it because I otherwise we either get into a eugenics conversation in way in which we talk we say things like oh people of color are more susceptible that is actually an incorrect uh, phrasing. We have to say that the environments people of color are forced to live in because of structural racism is what causes the susceptibility. And even things like what Alexandria Ocasio said at the very beginning that being black is a pre-existing condition. I get where she was going, but even that's not really correct. That is still racialized. It's not that being black has anything to do with your being with being um, uh, a pre-existing. It's the experience that is put upon black people, and and being really specific and nuanced about the language is super important because what what we want to do is get health justice what we want is health equity so that nuanced language is incredibly important so i'm going to get into now into 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 why so um 
what we discovered through the stress response, which is what we mainly study, is that the stress response is there to give us stability, so our biological system to give us stability, as we experience external and internal changes. So an example of an internal change would be fighting COVID, fighting a virus is an example of an internal change that our body has to adapt to. So our stress response has been involved in all of us being able to combat it directly, as in we, we, we got the virus and we, are, we were able to get better, or in our immune system supporting us and not getting the virus in the first place. And um, then from there, the body goes through a process called allostasis, which is this stability through time. So that means that the stress response speaks to our immune system, our endocrine system, our metabolical system to deploy the responses that are needed to keep our body stable. So in terms of a virus, if we stay on the internal side, one of the one of the consequences is fever, right? So so the fever is part of that process of our body coming back to stability and destroying the virus. When we're talking about the external side, that's also then divided into two tech, more taxonomies: the environment itself and the experiences within that environment. So. One would be, the environment would be air pollution. So that part of the dialogue in the research is correct. Yes, air pollution is going to be, it's going to present itself as a stressor. What that means though, is that our stress response engages to try to bring our body back to stability because we're breathing in something that is toxic, something that our is not good for our system. Then on the other hand, we have the experience of it. So that means, or sorry, the experience of our environment. So that means, for example, you go through a job loss. Going right now through COVID is a psychosocial stressors. Uh, sorry, psychosocial stressor. Um, or, or experiencing an injustice, experiencing discrimination, experiencing poverty, and everything that comes with it is part of what we call psychosocial stressors. When a body then or a person is submitted to a chronic exposures of these stressors, um, especially down on the environment and experience side, where, where a person constantly is getting subjected to environmental pollutants, when a person then constantly is subjected to psychosocial stressors, the stress response has to keep going. It has to keep engaging. And eventually, there is a wear and tear, or there is a, there is a price that happens. Um, and that price that we pay is called allostatic load. So that means that we start to get permanent changes in our system. This can be things like hypertension. This can show up as um, metabolical changes, for example, to our digestion system. And then over time, if that person is still doesn't get any respite, i.e. either through leaving the environment or, or getting um, support and resilience from the environment, and time progresses, that person then will experience something called allostatic overload. And that's when you get the diseases. So that can be anything from diabetes all the way to obesity, to mental health disorders, um, to, to COVID-19. And so what happens with COVID-19 in this, in, this, in this supply chain is that the individual with the chronic stressors, the individual who now has a deregulation in the system, doesn't have enough buoyancy in the system to be able to, to fight off something like COVID and they become more susceptible. And that brings us to my third point, that susceptibility is something that is not deterministic, which is another part of the framing of the conversation, that we're not talking biological determinism, i.e., 
because you grow up in poverty, you're going to have XYZ diseases. Because you're black, you're going to have XYZ diseases. Because you're an indigenous person, you're going to have XY diseases. That is incorrect. The reason that black, indigenous, and people of color end up being sorry, ranking higher in these diseases is because they are also ranking higher in experiencing poverty and experiencing environmental racism, i.e. pollutants. So coming down to the last part of it is that, as I said, this study was there to present the science, but it was also to understand where the responsibility lies. Because if we just keep it on ethnicity um, times um, a disease, and we don't understand these mechanics, then who is responsible? And how do we fight health justice? How do we fight for health equity when it feels ephemeral, when it feels like there isn't, quite frankly, a finger to point to? Um, So that's the last bit that we also looked at in, in our study was, well, if it's our environment that is making us sick, if our health is related to our environment, then who creates these environments? Who are the people that build our environments? That's city planners, that is architects, um, and policymakers that zone certain people in certain areas. And that zoning, actually, in our report, or in our study, we have, um, using some of our software and using the index of um, mass deprivation, and also using census data, we have created maps. And it's a really saddening and distressing um, correlation that we see that the areas where have the highest levels of mass deprivation plus high levels of environmental stressors are also the areas that are most populated by what we classify as vain populations. So that's why we have the results. That's why we have the disproportionate health outcomes, not just simply because of our ethnicity, because technically there is no such thing as race. None of us are racially different. Um, One of the things that we're gonna do as a next step is that we do want to do a study um, uh, dealing with a mainly white poor population because we're going to see very similar trends and that really will go to show and prove that it is not the human it is the human's relationship with the environment and you could interchange anyone's race um in 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 this in this type of system and they would have very similar results especially if both the experience of discrimination um, and the experience of poverty alongside the experience of it, of environmental stressors is very is very similar so i'm going to stop there um i think that's the crux of the study the rest of it obviously you guys can have a read through or i would presume most of you guys have have read it. Um, so now I'm just going to open it up to the discussion. So yeah, ask questions, make comments, make critiques. Um, so and then obviously introduce yourself with your name um, if you want. Um, tell us what you do, and then um, but more importantly, tell us why you're interested in this subject. So yeah, so over to you guys. I would just like to say just before we jump into that. Sorry, this is Josh from Centric Lab. Uh, I am recording this for us. If anyone has a problem with any of their name or screen being presented, please contact me and I'll, afterwards, and I will work out uh, how to edit this in post. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Okay, so does anyone, anybody, want to have a go? Hello, Sorry. Sorry, Maria. Oh, hi, Maria. How are you? 
I'm fine. How are you? It's Good, thank lovely you. to to see you and to be you know in the room with people that are interested in this theme and want to see be beyond the rhetoric um, of race and COVID. That is very similar to the rhetoric of race and then everything else, isn't it? So it's very enlightening your introduction and the work you've been doing. Uh, I'm. I just want to share with you. I represent now the University of Nottingham's um, uh, Bain staff network. I know that the, the term is uh, not uh, everyone's cup of tea, but as I used to say, we've got biggest fishes to fry right now, and we can come back to the to the to the nomenclature in a later stage. Um, I. Something that is that is concerning a lot of people as we engage with the recovery phase of the pandemic is um, is wanting to state very clearly that you know it's it's the lack of or diminished buoyance of the of the human body when it's over systemic continued stress. And uh, and the and the the risk that this body, that is the the black, the Asian body, faces as well. And in the in the when coming back to the workplace, when coming back to normal activities. So it seems that despite all this discussion, there is a disregard um, to to the vulnerability triggered by the by the oppression. So how how do you see that, and how do you see your work contributing to this to this theme and to and to this challenge of the recovery phase? Um, really good question. Um, so first is that we want to partner up with people that are in the front lines of the of the recovery, whether it is at a citizen level and its communities or whether it is at a policy and or um, council level, um, because we are a tool. That's what, you know, that's, I think that's the best way to see centric. We're a tool to explain the phenomena. And then from there, we can be used to for example, at first case scenario, present the case and at second scenario to, to put down the responsibility that we have to, for example, in terms of policy, we have to give people who have, who are belonging to these communities, a, yes, a longer recovery time. Like, what does that mean structurally in terms of work? Does it mean being able to go through a longer period of time um, with government financial assistance so that person can make a full recovery? Does that look like... Um, to where the uh, someone from these communities is given the the ability to stay to stay home or work from home if that's a possibility, um, so it really depends on on where the work is being done, and that's why we we definitely have to go down the partnership route because we simply just can we're not experts in the full array. So it is us being able to lend our work and our expertise to all the different um, ways that this is going to be tackled from the people that are 
within um, even like people that are recruiting as well, right? Um, um, because where you know, from a if you're recruiting and you want to eliminate or start to start dismantling things like structural racism within the employment arena, we have to be very mindful that if you're getting a person that is coming from these communities, of how do you support them? How do you support them through the interview process, through and all, all the way through uh, engaging them in a job and keeping them there, et cetera, et cetera. So, in short, it is going to have to for us on our side is to be able to do these partnerships um, and partner up with with the different types of expertise. Thank you very much. That's great. We will take that. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Okay. Who wants to go next? Hey, I don't mind saying something actually uh, just about prison. So my name's Kush. Uh, I'm a lawyer also based in Nottingham and my uh, specialism is prisoner rights and I've actually worked with um, Araceli and Josh before um, and they're taking the interest in what goes on on the prison estate in England and Wales. And my question, I guess, from reading the report and also from prior discussions I've had with uh, Centric Lab are the extent to which prison as an environment can be comparable to, say, an urban London space. Because we know from um, criminology networks, in particular European criminology networks, that the UK is known for having a particular form of academic gatekeeping on the prison estate. So the way in which you can st study urban environments um, is rendered a little bit more difficult in prisons. Although, Aricelli, you might remember there was an expert that we almost worked with um, on the one case we've collaborated on so far called Kate Herity, and I know she's part of a network of criminologists that study something known as sensory Penalities. So, how do you envisage, I guess, to sort of summarise my ramble, uh, how do you envisage um, extrapolating the data you found onto the prison environment? So, this gets really tricky in terms of language. I think language is so important in these conversations. So, I will iterate again the fact that we cannot talk about this as determinism again. So, so number one, I would have a look at Robert Sapolsky's work. I think he's one of the most ethical and moral scientists on the subject matter of criminality, as in what makes people... Um, what turns people into... It, sorry what are the mental mechanisms that are more fortuitous for a quote-unquote criminal mind, although even that is a bit of an odd statement. There's no such thing. We don't have criminal minds and non-criminal minds, which have minds. Um, so I think the first bit will, would be to understand that if a person is coming from an environment that has a lot of psychosocial stressors and has a high level of environmental stressors, there could be differences in their insulin response. From the insulin response, um, we do know from a neuroscience perspective that plays a very big role in everything from attention to encoding memory to decision making. So is that is especially when we're talking with really young people, did they make that decision because maybe they have been malnourished 
and there is a difference in the way that they're making decision making. I.e., they have less impulse control. A because they're teenagers, but also B because some of the structures in their brain don't have the environmental support. That has to be caveated with just because someone is growing up in these environments, they're going to be criminals. Because I think that has been the age-old racist um, battle when it comes to criminality. Because then we can get into, in trying to do anti-racist work, we can very much turn it very quickly into very racist work. And to say, well, then in that case, and that's what you got the broken windows theory, right? That we're going to patrol these neighborhoods more because this is where criminals lie. So there was a study that came out three years ago where they said that air pollution leads to, to criminal behavior. And I thought, oh, that is disgusting. You can't say that. It's not that direct. But they were that's what they were talking about. They were talking about how air pollution, which it does, ha- changes your, your, your insulin response system. And then they can have changes to other um, systems like dopamine and serotonin systems, which have been studied as being some of the systems um, that are responsible for impulse control problem, which is a very, you know, classic factoring into, into criminal behavior. But again, it's not biological determinism. There's a lot of people that have those differences and don't go off to commit a crime because they have um, a solid way into work. They have um, social and community support. They have the ability to, to make other choices. And again, that's another thing that we put in the study that a person can only have agency and even responsibility over something like health when the environment gives you the affordance. Um, a clear example, has been COVID, right? Like they tell us to wash our hands. Yeah, there's nothing in the public realm um, to where we can wash our hands, even close the toilets. So how can then we be responsible over our action and taking that responsibility over our health when the environment hasn't given that, given that affordance? So in summary, I would say that we should take this information to build in more understanding of number one, how do we give them the right type of help? It might just mean taking them away from those physical environments. It might mean actually giving them the proper medical and psycho um, psychological help um, that they need. And it definitely would mean, um, I think, even how much time they're spending in a prison environment because a prison environment can will only exasperate any of these problems because the prison environment is the quintessential exa- environment of both high levels of environmental stressors and very high levels of psychosocial stressors. So you are just injuring the body and the mind even more um, by putting a person in that in that system. Does that help? Thanks, Shelley. Perfect. I'd like to ask a question if I... Um if I, um, if I may. Hello, everybody. Sure. So I'm coming at this from a number of Evans. I work in um, green infrastructure, um, and I'm interested in the role that organisation can play in, um, in being um, good neighbours. There are lots of organisations that, um, that have footprint premises that are adjacent to um, uh, nature-deprived areas or areas which are, fun- are not functioning optimally for the communities in which they work. I'm just wondering if they're... Are there any resources out there already, or is it is there a pathway to um, uh, helping organisations to think about becoming good neighbours um, for their um, for the communi- communities in which they're based or, or, or adjacent adjacent to? I've been 
I, in my work, I think in green infrastructure, particularly in terms of wildlife and, um, and urban biodiversity, which I know is, is kind of a, um, is related to some of the things that it's talking about, although no, that may not map exactly onto it. We think about nature recovery networks, about, mm. about stepping stones, and about making um, networks of natural assets which are increasingly dense and increasingly well-connected. And I'm just wondering if there's something um, coming from my, my professional perspective um, of that that method, that way of thinking about improving the resources, which is um, useful for thinking about improving um, improving the experiences of some of the communities that we're talking about. Yeah, really good question, Lee. Um, yeah, so Civic Square is uh, a really good. Uh, a program, I think maybe is the right word for them, but they're doing a lot on, on community-based, so building community, um, understanding the mechanisms of community, um, and it's run by, well, one of the founders is Amandeep, um, and she is doing, she just historically has done some really great work on, on community, so she was one of the co-founders for the Birmingham um, Impact Hub, and um, now Civic Square is becoming a, I think she calls it a virtual meeting place and community building place, so she's got a lot of experience in that, so as a resource, check that out. In terms of, in general, about green spaces, um, so Scotland... Um, I think if they're about three years in, they've been prescribing already, um, GPs, I mean, have been prescribing nature as part of their mental health. Um, Norway has had a long tradition in prescribing nature and continue to do so. And, I'm, and I mean for even for very complex disorders like depression and um, and, um, and, and sorry, and psychosis. Um and so we do know that there is a great value to our health. It's a very complex, very tiered system. So it is both the experience of it, but then there are uh, enzymes that we are ingesting when we are in deep nature. And by deep nature, I mean, we're not just at Victoria Park, but we're actually in a forest um, um, environment or something akin to that, um, that is really healing and good for the support of our uh, um, gut health and our microbiome and we now are learning more and more even neuroscience is, is starting to dip into the microbiome world because so much of our gut um, dictates even even things like behavior we're still trying to understand a little bit more on that because it's very new but what we do what we do know is that um, deep uh, experience, long-term experiences, sorry, of deep nature infrastructure is incredibly good for our health. And then again, we have, then from there, we have to ask the question, who has access to that level of deep nature? And there, I haven't heard it here, but I know that in the United States, there are more programs um, that are, well, pre-COVID, of course, that were popping up of, um, of African-American organizers that were putting, um, taking children that had always you know, grown up in, um, in an urban environment and taking them into, into nature for the first time. So many for the first time were seeing an actual forest and rivers and things like that, which is incredibly sad that we are depriving people out of the most fundamental relationship that we can have. And the same thing um, with indigenous programs. There's a lot of indigenous programs in the Americas, specifically in the United States and Canada, 
Canada that are bringing also Indigenous children back into 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 the wild because again I, um, they have also been displaced from from that conversation of, of nature. I'm sorry, Shelley. <laughs> Does anybody want to like do a critique or kind of a mm, that doesn't make sense? So I don't sound like a weird person that's just got all the answers because that's uncomfortable. <laughs> Can I ask a quick question? Then I'm yeah, question. Oh, yeah. So I'm Angesha. I work as a researcher at UCL, so the university, and I look um, at the built environment, well-being, health energy in the built environment. And I just saw something on Twitter a few days ago, and I had meant to ask you about it, Araceli, because it was something, there were, there were actually two things. So one was a, was a pre, was a registered, no, one was a preprint of a study that found that ethnicity, even the controlling for any sociodemographic factors and so forth, still seems to play a role, and the different ethnicities are differently affect, differently affected. Um, well, I can't remember the details of that, but that just got me thinking. Um, but then the other one was, that was again so recently, so um, some people are saying that also for like the healthcare workers, we see that many more from ethnic minorities unfortunately die. Um, but that someone then says, well, they question whether in that case it could be linked to like um, index of multi deprivation and, you know, deprived living circumstances, because if someone is, for example, especially looking at doctors as opposed to nurses, those are people who are employment, who are, you know, normally good employment, who might not have, might have very decent, decent living environments, and then the person made the argument that, you know, maybe it's not so much, that it might be something about ethnicity as such that plays a role outside of this discussion of living conditions and all these kind of things. I, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to agree with it at all. But I just thought it would be interesting if you had any thoughts on that, what might explain that for in-employment healthcare workers, like at least doctors who are having a de decent enough income, why we still see this higher higher risk of death. Um, and, yeah, so I'd just be interested in your thoughts. And otherwise, I just want to say I think this is great work and this is amazing work, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how you take it further. Uh, thanks so much, Keisha. Yeah, so really good question. So we're at the moment working on a Lancet study, well, hopefully to be a Lancet study, um, going in a little bit deeper on this question. Um, so in the first question about are there, that there is some evidence on ethnicity being the key factor. So I, I don't know how many of you have heard of it, but there's some, there's a phenomenon called epigenetics, right? So it's that there are, there you have your, and I'm going to caveat, I am not a geneticist, so that's also um, important to understand. So um, you've got your base layer of genes that we're all similar. So all of us have an immune system, a variation of you know, metabolical systems. We function in the same way. There's nothing, there's no race that functions in a different way. Like none of us have developed the ability to breathe underwater, for example. We're the same. Um, but this argument is mainly pinned, or the way where I read it, was mainly pinned on sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is something that um, is very pronounced within the African-American community. And then from there, they, were, they said that um, communities in Africa, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but there was a differentiator between the people that had sickle cell anemia. Um, they had a different experience when it came to malaria. And so there you have very much ethnicity. Um, because of, of an epigenetic adaptation. So epigenetics really is there to help us adapt to an environment long term. 
but you still have to have a conversation of the environment. So the point would be that if I was living under the very similar circumstances, so my ethnicity or whatever you want to call it is indigenous. So if I were to do that and I was going to have the same trajectory through time and exposure and experience, et cetera, then the chances are that I would probably develop a very similar adaptation or a very similar difference, if you want to call it as well. But we can't talk about that difference without talking about then it, number one, being an epigenetic adaptation, but number two, that epigenetics was there and has been there to help us understand really that genes are not this stagnant thing, that they're also a mechanism that helps us adapt to the environment. But precisely there is the crux of it. We're back to the environment. So the appropriate way to address it again is through the environment rather than the individual because then we also have to go move away from just the science paradigm and into the paradigm of morality and ethics i.e and responsibility right because then if we just say african americans are more susceptible to sickle cell anemia and from sickle cell anemia you have other factors that they become more susceptible to then whose job is it to help the african american community it just, how do you get health justice for that? You can't, because again, people then just go, oh, well, it's a genetic thing, rather than going, actually, what in the environment has made African-Americans more susceptible? And then the final point to that is that, again, there's no such thing as genetic or biological determinism, because there's plenty of African-Americans that don't have sickle cell anemia either. And there's also plenty of white people that do have sickle cell anemia. So it's not just a question of, of African-American people having it, but... But when we see, you know, one of the things is that when we see numbers and we see stats and we see the imbalance and we're like, okay, we, we our propensity, I think, as, as, as any brain would be is to find the pattern without seeing the pattern in the context of an entire environment. And then finally, Geisha, to your point in terms of the medical staff, I would love to see a fully systemic, comprehensive study on that. So number one, um, a doctor salary, yes, is very good, but when this is something that we've discussed before, um, a lot of people of color, my family included, my dad's salary is not just was my dad's salary growing up. My dad's salary had to also be the salary and be there to help my grandmother, his brothers and sisters, us as a family. Like a lot of the times, these salaries elevate an entire family from poverty, and therefore they may not have the quote-unquote lifestyle that another counterpart would have on the same salary, which means that, again, you have then the psychosocial stressors of, of financial maybe instability. It might be that because their salary doesn't go as far, they might be living in environments that are as Geisha, you pointed out, that might might score high on the index of mass deprivation, again, than being um, uh, more uh, exposed to um, environmental factors. And of course, then there's the act. The, there was there was some study that started to look at that. BAME doctors, especially um, black women, um, weren't having the confidence to say, actually, I'm not going to work without a PPE because of discriminatory fears, um, because of the usual racist structures that we see, and therefore their exposure was more acute. It wasn't a, a fair um, exposure rate either. And again, I would, I would like to see those studies as well um, and, and, and see what are, what are those nuanced differences 
that add up to a completely different experience, even though at face value we might think, oh, well, we were both in the same environment, but what are the other experiences that are nuanced? Because again, we cannot talk about biological determinism. So the final bit to add to that is in the study, we did put an example of a of, of another study that was looking at African-American um, teenagers and the teenagers that were all, they were all in the same environment, all quote unquote exposed to the same amount of psychosocial stressors related to poverty, but the, but the young men that were in homes where they had a parent or a guardian that was essentially provided them with psycho, psychological safety, I was able to guide them, they ended up having less damage to their allostatic system. Um, and they had ended up having less levels of inflammation. And that's really important as well to talk about, that there is no such thing as the determinism factor, that you would then have two, two individuals experiencing very similar circumstances where you get one level of affordance or one level up of, um, of, of being able to create resilience, and that human is off to, to a very different trajectory. And that's where I think it's really important in terms of justice that we are able to create environments that are equitable, where everyone has access to the similar affordances or to the same affordances, but because we live in an unjust world, that these communities get more resources and get and get and get more help. So they don't continue down the uh, trajectory of, of uh, susceptibility to disease. Did that make sense? But yes, thank you very much for that. I'm sorry, Marie, so I have to leave now, but I'm looking forward to uh, the next uh, steps. And thanks for the very good answer. And I think uh, I like pointing out the fact that a salary is not the same depending on what you have to spend it on. I think that's a really important point. That was something really, really interesting to look into that. So thank you very much for that. Great. Thanks, Keisha. Does anybody want to add to that, by the way? So um, in... Um, in terms of either from personal experience or from professional experience in terms of what Geisha was saying of where people might think there is some some level of ethnicity determinism. So we can just unpack that because to me that's, or to the according to the research that we've done, that is really the crux of it. The crux of us being able to get the health justice that we need comes in really understanding and unpacking um, those those instances. Um, hello. Um, yeah, hi, Amy. Hello, uh, Amy. Um, I am a, I'm an architect, but um, I wear two hats, kind of mostly one as a mall. As a, <laughs> I'm a kind of um, I'm an architect who I work with a community organisation called Peach down in Custom House in Newham, <laughs> and um, uh, looking at like a lots of different things, but working with residents. I work for residents, they are my employers. <laughs> and, um, and we do lots of um, things around regeneration and uh, housing and around affordability, but basically we're just kind of battling uh, with the council to get a regeneration that is to create an environment that is for the existing residents that they can afford and that benefits them in several different ways, including health, including um, economy and those kinds of subjects, basically just a better opportunity for life to be able to thrive. Mm. And um, my other uh, role is um, I w entered the world of uh, local authority in Essex 
and um, I in Essex to kind of understand what the barriers were to those things and like the men and the mentality and to kind of um, be the Trojan horse that goes inside and figures that out a bit. Um, yeah, um, I think I was I was kind of uh, I think there's this this thing about like whether or not you uh, debunk the thing of you know like when when you know when the statistics came out. The first thing that came to my mind, potentially because I'm kind of someone who's obsessed with the environment and social justice, <laughs> is that they kind of go, well, yeah, that's because, you know, like there's so many reasons why um, BAME people would have a poor environment. Um, you know, it, it's really from like when, you know, like from like birth to death, it's just like the whole spectrum of life has several environmental, I mean, multitudes of environmental factors that would mean that you're going to be challenged. And I think, I think as well, I think it's probably, it's almost that thing of like the more that you, there's like part way to debunk the thing of, uh, it's useful to debunk the thing that it's just a genetic problem. And because that means it's, it's very fatalist, it's fatalist. And it's like kind of like, well, then nothing happens. And I think, I think this it's really I mean it's so annoying actually because it's kind of, it's really kind of, it's just really obvious it's a bit it's a bit like you know when we think about global warming it's like regardless of whether or not you think that the temperature is rising because of A, B, and C we are wasteful that is the end of it no one should have to live in those environmental conditions that is just the crux of it it's just ridiculous um, and I think I don't know if it's useful to kind of uh, well, one, when you're doing your, uh, you know, who, who you uh, invite to the, to the table, is it people that are along the way in their life? Like, because I think in a way there's snapshots of like how, you know, now the, ed the university system is just about to get so much worse um, mm. and like how that discriminates. And, you know, you've got like the prison system and the, just the law and justice system and the housing system and access to affordable housing, which... It has been, you know, re relatively recent for like people of colour haven't been able to get mortgages and still get discriminated against. So they can't even get on the housing ladder. And you know, the way that you know the way the housing works as proper investment and so on. And so you've just it's really like what what kind of what kind of power um, do people really have? And I think that's quite. Um, interesting in terms of like the power over the environment so you know who has power over the environment at the moment it's large you know like you look at the who owns land and like they are large companies who own land and land bank and people play down the role of land in the whole economy and power because well it makes it's, it makes it a lot easier to get on with what you're doing if you for, you know, like pretend you don't exist <laughs> and there's no tax on that land and so on. So then, and then you've got these things about, um, so that's one of the large things. And then, you you know, you've got people ha who, you know, you've got the, there's things that are at play that are just about how the, um, you know, I think, in honesty, like being in a local authority, you do have a role to play in how land is used, how environments are set up. But in honesty, it's, it's so much. It's like so shockingly undermined by um, by private uh, interests. By most land is owned privately, and then you have like developers and consortiums. 
and and in reality it's quite shocking how um how much there's a lot that goes on behind closed doors with those things you know not with myself but you know you know it's happening because you can see the consequences of it um and how those things that are meant to be put in place get easily like chipped away at that are meant to be about you know access to green space or a actual building of a hospital or an improvement to the school or whatever those things get whittled away uh, really easily and eroded um yeah i don't know it's a bit of a but there's a lot of, like as you're all talking i was just like oh god yeah these are the challenges but i think the one thing i was just the main thing i was thinking was is it that you just show like the effect of environments um as much as you possibly can that can be that and start with the things that you think that are, are, are able to be changed because it's like how do you you know picking your battle because there's a lot of battles i mean you know when this conversation's you know looking at the report and thinking about what we're talking about it's so huge because environment is like everything isn't it <laughs> it's, it's a massive yeah but it, you know it's just like not having access to affordable housing i mean that is a, i mean once you've got access once you've got a stable home that just changes like everything and i think that is one of the major when you the basics of life because, and then you you know you're having to choose between paying your rent or buying food and then you end up paying your rent or you end up buying your food and then you get kicked out. So it's like, how do you, how are we a developer, how are we allegedly a developed country? I do not quite know how we've got that status anymore. <laughs> and I'd say that for several other countries as well. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I'd, I'd say that you don't, like, you know, it's almost like the more that you argue against like the biological argument, the more you verify it in a strange way. I know that sounds mad. But I think in some ways it's like you just go, no, this is the environment, and you kind of say um, that it's it's it is being people. But like you mentioned as well, there's a lot of like sort of like working class white people, and you know like all all shades. You know, and like kind of basically, I mean, and we know that that is more. I think that's more exacerbated and more likely to be being. And then there are prejudices and racism on top of that. You know, with like justice system and that that does exist but i think in some ways it's almost like you you compare the the like areas geographically of like these people literally a deprivation map uh an index of deprivation like mapped against like like health and and so on in which i mean that's the most like kind of obvious one but it's just this thing of like being able to show that it doesn't almost, it's almost irrelevant in some ways, like it's, it's, it's exacerbated in vain people, but the, the fact of the matter is there's a large chunk of people who are uh, getting and uh, having terrible health um, because of environment, and then if you are of colour, you've got the extra things on top of like systematic, systematic racism, but it's almost like you kind of want to have like, this is the problem for a large swath of society on which the rest of society depends. That's the other thing. It's like, I think the importance of it is so um, misunderstood um, as to how it's how we're all inter interdependent. And I thought it kind of was obvious when people started clapping on a Thursday. Not sure how to feel about the clap. But, you know, it's like, you know, when people were like, kind of like, oh, yes, the key workers, the key workers, but no one's prepared to um, 
look at who they were and like look at the conditions they were in and like think about hang on a minute they should be paid they should actually be paid properly so they can actually afford their rent because they can't you know um even junior doctors are sort of struggling with like how they live and and those things and they're meant to, you know their doctors have god only knows you know with with everybody else below that level in the pay scale so i don't know i think um I, I think just be wary, I would imagine, of like, of falling into the trap of eugenics. Because I think the, the the average person, once they see the environment, is actually such an influence. And people really underestimate that. As an architect, people don't get it. They think like it's all about like going to the gym. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? No, it's true. It's true. Or like go to an apartment. You're like, well. Yeah, and I think it's that thing of, like, just, you know, how do you show that living near a road, um, like a busy road, and living in an area where you can't afford your rent and where you don't have access to health, uh, healthy foods or basic, you know, like, ingredients, basically, and that you don't, you have to get, um, you have to, uh, you don't have access to public transport, all these things, and then, you know, you, and how, like, culturally you may not be able, like, culturally it may be less acceptable to run in the park because you're, you know, a Muslim woman and that's just, like, not what is acceptable. But that's the only thing that the council are bothered to provide for you. It's these things, isn't it, of, like, just highlighting the um, basics of, like, just basics not being there, I suppose. Yeah, no, 100%. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, so, like, just dismantling or, sorry, categorizing some of your points so um the first part is like what do we do i mean yes this is incredibly overwhelming but that's why i said to maria we got to create partnerships because hopefully all of us that are in this phone call are here because we're playing a very specific role within that supply chain whether it's the people here that are in the prison system that we have to that's why we have to abolish the prison system um because it only makes us sicker um uh, and then, you know, there's uh, Lee, who's working on, on in the green infrastructure, um, because that has to have a whole very specific conversation. Um, so I think, I think the, the overwhelmingness can be brought down into the idea of, like, yes, working with different, with different mm-hmm. um, organizations. Um, and there's also, of course... And more importantly, working with a community. So um, Centric works at a community level. So at the moment, we're supporting um, cash, but we also work with developers um, uh, at that level. So we can so we can try to hit it from the bottom up and the top down, and maybe somewhere in the middle, we can get some we can get some progress. In terms of what you said about the gym, that's so important because we have looked at health as the responsibility of the individual. But that can only happen when the individual, like I said, has the agency and you have an ecosystem that supports that person. So even the idea of having a park next to a community that, let's say, that really needs it to bring down air pollution and also to encourage exercise. But what their time is very different. You know, if we go down a stereotypical route, if they are an essential worker, they're doing shift work. Mm-hmm. If they're doing shift work, how, where does a child go to play in their neighborhood park? They probably are not even in the neighborhood most of the day because they have to be in some sort of child care because the parent is working shifts. 
So you've created a park, but the child isn't even in the neighborhood because the child has to be somewhere else because of the family structure. And so it, so when we're saying, um, sorry, so I'll, I, 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 a cornerstone of our work is getting people to think systemically. And, and that's why we always tell people, like, it, it, well, I say always, we are trying to get people to understand it in terms of justice. Because once you frame it, in terms of justice, then you are forced to really understand all the differentiators that can that can play a role in a person's well-being and health. And then the other point that you made about um, work, I mean, sorry for the bad word, but we're all fucked. Like, I, we're, I'm talking about black people and Bangladeshi people because they were the ones that were disproportionately affected. But yeah, we are all screwed. We have normalized poor health. We have normalized not, I'm not saying that it should be stigmatized because it shouldn't, but we have normalized the fact that, like, when I was growing up, maybe one time I would hear of somebody getting cancer. Like, it was such a huge phenomenon of someone getting cancer, finding cancer, dying of cancer. And as I've grown up, it is just, it is, it is, it is almost expected that a parent, an older parent is going to, is going to die of cancer, or there's going to be a heart attack, or there's going to be a stroke, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is what I would also like people to understand, um, based on your point, that this is all of our fight. None of us are chilling in great health and um, breathing pristine air. None of us are. Um, the justice comes in the fact that why disproportionately, why we have the disproportion so we know how and where to deploy the resources more effectively. But yeah, this really needs to be everyone's fight um, because we're not, as a human race, we're not doing well from from a health perspective because our planet's not doing well. Cool. Um, Josh uh, was just sending me a message that, did you want to say something because he's our urbanist in our lab? Um, Did you want to jump in and say something to Amy in terms of some of the more built environment elements? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Jelly. Um, And yeah, Amy, uh, very good points. I just wanted to uh, contribute a little bit. Um, If you're interested in the mechanics of land ownership and its history and the sort of inequities that have risen from that, um, there's a gentleman called Alistair Parvin, and that's Alistair, A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R, Parvin. Um, He's an architect by training, um, but spends a lot of his time working on innovation solutions for the public sector, particularly around uh, everything from home building to development, um, and he really breaks apart the the hypocrisy of land ownership uh, from a very well researched point of view. Um, I, you, I, I think you were hitting on some very prescient points when it comes to how do we have, how are we allowing these inequities to exist when it's so plainly obvious. And I think that's because the the work that I've been doing to try and deconstruct what is what is it that Centric's trying to solve in this situation, and that whilst health from an epidemiological level has been done has done great wonders to help look at a nation, look at a nation's health, and produce something like the indices of multiple deprivation, the conversation tends to start uh, stop there, and we look at health as this very macro blob. Um, when you go throughout a number of planning organizations and their recommendations around healthy planning, the there is a there is a behavior within 
the sector and the industry to look at what they believe to be have, have been good practice and then suggest that people sort of look at these general good practices and apply them and nowhere in this conversation is there actually a localized understanding of what is health and that i think is really like um to me what came about the the realization for the work that aricelli and the team led um in this study in the supporting of the community in southall um and other work is that when it comes to the policymakers, um, and there was a policymaker who, um, for a London council, who said directly, when we try to create health policies, we we need to understand the direct impacts to health. And as Aricelli and, and I'm sure she'll comment that many other scientists around the world have demonstrated that health is not an in a one plus one equals two. It's not an input output process. It's a series of things weighing on a system against its resources to determine is there a consequential impact. And as such, there is this like false security and this contrived security. And I think probably this very bigoted security and going, well, we can only account for what's accountable. And it's that kind of very like, financialized accountants process of well if we can't measure it we can't improve it but actually when you know measurably what's wrong you know what to stop and so when it comes to looking at localized health as Aricelli would say there is no good level of air pollution it's an oxymoron to say this is an acceptable level and what we've found in particular when looking at the community in Southall was that the policy around them coming from Public Health England who would say oh well look this baseline should be okay for the levels of benzene and ephedramine in the air and you know what the nitrous oxide this should be okay this should be okay for a standard and so the officers and the councillors at Ealing Council would write down their policies and go okay let's get this into play and then it gets passed on to an urban planner who would go well you know yeah we're going to have a little bit more emissions but we'll make sure we just don't you know stop a truck outside a child's window every time and the developer will go through and they'll do their bits and everything but at no point in that conversation and this is the problem i think we have with health urban planning cities and and communities is that at no point was there the first baseline is what is the material consideration of the existing community's health Planning and urban development always looks to the future, but it never considers the present and understand why the present is influenced by the past. And so we have to get more micro in our understanding of health. We have to become more localized in order to direct the policies. Um, within that, the there is an important element around devolution. Um, for example, London's air pollution was a lot worse around the 2000s, and slowly the devolution that occurred in London um, that under a Labour government, so it's not just, you know, you want everyone to fight, uh, fight for themselves. Um, it did lead to things like Transport for London and other policies that enabled London to change its tactics. Um, and having spoken to other economists in this field, they say that if you can allow local authorities to have better control on their capital spending as well as their tax revenues, they can start to look at what might link better through to health policies. And so there is a, a level of a hamstrung nature of local authorities. I'm not excusing the behavior of inadequacy of any form of racism um, and just you know ignorance and negligence in many ways that does exist. But when it's very hard, you can't make a local plan around your local agendas if the way that you are, you are encouraged to spend money directly contradicts that and the way that you collect money. So there is an importance around the idea of how do we empower 
you know, local decision makers to have better local insight and local knowledge in order to understand how to improve local impacts. Um, and I think one of the, the last things I just want to add to the idea of how do we get sort of bigger organizations to change, um, there is still a, a real lack of understanding of things like supply chains. There is a a lot of uh, back patting um, in around the real estate and development industry on achieving, you know, a sustainable building. Um, but however, where have all the vehicles come from to put up that sustainable building? What communities have they driven through from where have they come? What are the impacts of all those large tires destroying roads um, uh, going through? And so until we can, you know, if we want to really count things, then we should also be accounting for all the embodied carbon and the emissions and the likely impacts that they have on communities um, in order to get an industry to be cognizant of their impacts and also understand how they can improve and get these things linked to things such as environmental social governance agendas, which is a big factor for uh, sort of pension funds investing into investors that have good uh, responsibility metrics are set to them. So there's an importance there on, um, so just in summary, there are people who are investigating the concept of land ownership um, and how it's a, a really a negative extraction on a lot of people's lives. Development can be good, but when it's profiteering and not placemaking, we have a problem. Uh, supply chains, we need to better understand the systemic impact of emissions rather than just looking at an isolated sustainability issue. Um, we do we do need to better understand community health. And this is what Centric is really working towards, is an impact in policy uh, at a micro level, not just saying, oh, have more green space, but how do policymakers have the tools and the resources to baseline their community health on a year-by-year -year basis to understand what is the level of intervention that a community can have before its impacts become too great, and then to flip on what are the mitigations and solutions around that. So um, that's what Centric's working towards. Uh, that comes from a variety of what we do by working with practitioners uh, at policy level uh, as well as sort of development level. But I think we actually do need a more of a social voice. Um, we're going to be launching a campaign soon around health justice, and we will be um, we'll have a small manifesto of what people are signing up to based on what we're sort of starting off with here. So uh, we do need our voices to be louder when communicating. Um, but really, we need to target micro policy, not just say, oh, everyone needs to live by this or everyone should have and that. We we need to be able to analyze our areas in the same way that people analyze software apps religiously. We need to, we need to be able to analyze our environments religiously in this way. So that's me. I hope that helps. And if anyone has any comments, please feel free to shout back at me. <laughs> Cool. Thanks, Josh. Um, so we should be wrapping up because I know um, everyone is being tugged in different directions. So um, three people, three comments, questions, thoughts. Who wants to go first? Also, if you already spoken, you can speak again. <laughs> Sorry. I don't mind um, just exploring a friction, I guess, uh, which is a, is a kind of healthy friction. It's one that you don't see explored as well as you guys have explored it today. And I think represents, as others have said, the start of a conversation. And that's a friction between what I'd describe as um, two maxims, really. Or that there's one that Amy uh, mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, which is this idea of a Trojan horse. And I often feel like one myself in my work going on to the prison estate uh, and reporting on the 
sorts of events that would otherwise be very much concealed from public view. Um, but being in that environment, um, you're also very cognizant of this idea that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, mm. Audrey Lord once put it. So I think this is the start of a really good conversation as to when we seek to influence the likes of local authorities, how do we prevent ourselves from being co-opted by them? Because I think especially with the sort of work Centric Lab are doing on um, allostatic load and allostasis, I think it goes such a long way to really dismantling the very carceral logics of not only the prison system but other systems um, imposed by local authorities and other public bodies. And um, it's important, I guess, not to underestimate just how revolutionary these ideas are and also how uh, poorly received <laughs> they'll be by those in power. So I think thanks for starting that conversation. I know I keep praise on you guys already, but you're doing such amazing work. So thanks. Oh, thanks, Coach. Yeah, I mean, it's if I if 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 everyone here can, like, what do you call it? Tell another person, and that other person tells another person. I think there's something powerful in that. I mean, our job is just to keep uncovering things and bringing them to to the public arena. And one of the things that I forgot to say is that we've also launched a urban health index, which is on our website, and you can and it's our first. Boy, we have miles to go still, but um, it's a it's a it's our first city is London, and we do want to do it across the UK. Um, of people being able to, at the very minimum, now check whether they live in an area that is highly susceptible to poor health outcomes and whether it's not. Because one, again, back to the fight for justice and health justice is that a lot of times we haven't been given the tools to be able to point the finger to what is happening. And um, I had a conversation with, um, Rosamond, who is uh, Rosamond, uh, who is the mother of Ella Roberts, and if you don't know about the Ella Roberts Foundation, do check it out. Um, and she didn't know that her daughter was having excessive uh, asthma attacks because of air pollution. She just kept taking her daughter to the hospital because she thought there was something in, um, biologically wrong with her daughter as in like she had a disease she had a disorder and it was treated for a very long time as such and i think that lost the headway to be able to have saved ella she ended up passing away in 2013 um and now her mother is fighting for air pollution to be the cause of death on her death certificate and that's an amazing move for health justice because what practitioners want to give her is that her death was an asthma attack whilst that yes was the mechanism the biological mechanism by which she passed that is not what caused her death if that makes sense and and, and I think it's knowing and passing on this information and understanding this information that is so important to the justice movement because we can then point to it we don't you know we don't have to we don't have to suffer in an enigma, which I think adds to the tragedy. So even as as a woman, so much of our 
pain of through reproductive health, a lot of the times we don't even have the name to pinpoint to the pain that we're feeling. And there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, movement on that. And that we can go to the doctor and say, by the way, the reason I've been fatigued for the last three months was is because of a hormonal imbalance called X or Y. And um, and and so again, we just we and we just sit there and we suffer without knowing what to point to, and I think also knowing who we point the responsibility to. So if now we are understanding that in a, the environment plays such a crucial role. Um, and I mean by environment, anything, whether you're in a prison, whether you are in um, posh house in um, Marlebone High Street, which by the way, you're also breathing some of the shittiest air in the UK. So FYI for that one. Um, and you are, you know, you're being exposed to something that you shouldn't be exposed to. And I think that's probably the crux of our fight, that we, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be expo- exposed sorry, to poison because that is having a massive effect of our health, like mental and physical. And it's why we're living with the results that we're having to live with COVID-19. Yes, COVID-19 is its own phenomenon. It is a virus that was going to create death. But the devastation of it has everything to do with our reaction to it and to the fact of where we are in our in our biological health. Um, that if we would have had a bit more resilience because of the environments that we live in, we wouldn't we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. Um, cool. Okay. So uh, one more, and if not, we say goodbye. We give it. Okay, cool. Um, so um, next steps. Um, obviously, for you guys who haven't read the study, please read the study. We're we're working at the moment on another iteration of the study where we're we're going in a little bit deeper into into the phenomena and actually framing it as a bigger problem, which is under the framing of planetary health, um, because. That is again. It's another. If we're really going to get to the root of the problem, I think it's 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 that we have to pin it as an ecological phenomenon. Um, and then, like I said, check out the Urban Health Index. Um, we have given some very simple instructions. Um, it's a very rudimentary version uh, 1.0 of writing to your local MP, writing to your council. Um, to say, by the way, did you know that that I'm living and my community is living in an area of of, um, of biological inequality that is going to lead to poor health outcomes? We even, what do you call it, delineated the letter. Um, if you're not doing it for yourself, do it for the other people in, in your community. If you are working in that area or you have projects within those areas, you know, again, bring it up at work to say, what are we going to do? How do we how is our development going to have a difference um, in these communities? Um, and um, we're going to continue to to release more civic-based tools. We have find um, a project called um, Urban Health Justice. <laughs> I'm not very innovative, but it is what it is. Um, and it's it's in partnership with um, an architectural firm, um, where we're going to take that again the civic engagement one step further, where we're going to ask citizens to do a survey about. What do you see out the window? How much time are you spending outside? Are you doing shift work? Are you doing a lot of sedentary uh, uh, work? So we can build that ecosystem of each individual to A, 
get the individual to understand how their health is related to way above and beyond, I didn't eat sugar today and I went to the gym, um, and also allowing us to be able to study that phenomena, um, answering some of the questions that Geisha brought up, to understand then those nuances and where the different outcomes are, are, are happening. So please stay tuned, and um, thanks a lot, guys.